I'd like to invite you to turn to page uh, <clears throat> 1027. For, is that right? Luke 10. Chapter 10, and we'll read 1 through 11 and 16 through 20. A few words of introduction about this passage. It's a story about missionary work. Sort of a missionary, kind of a missionary sending. It's not the first story of missionary work in the Bible. You think all the way back to Jonah, certainly he was sent as a missionary of sorts to Nineveh. Other people have been sent as missionaries or other people have been commissioned by God. But this has this real sort of modern missionary feel to it. Jesus sends his uh, disciples, not the twelve, but a different group, we'll get into that, a different group of people, to go ahead on his way to Jerusalem to sort of prepare the way for him and sort of uh, get, the, get the cities ready for him to come through. And this, this reading has some really interesting technical instructions, which you might kind of read and go, oh, this is just kind of like a laundry list of you know, these are the things you should do and shouldn't do while you're doing your missionary work. And so it's, it's more like the details that aren't that important. But actually, I think we're going to find in the details what's at, at heart for Jesus in this thing. So actually, the details we're, we're really going to look at this time. And they're, they're unique, they're interesting, but they reveal his purpose and his plans. And through it all, we see, because of this sending, another affirmation that Jesus has spiritual authority over the powers of darkness, and that his mission, going to Jerusalem on the way there, is all about liberating the world from the, the forces of evil so that people can have new life in him. So that's a little bit of the introduction. He's still on his way to Jerusalem. It seems like he's still, he's still in the north part of the country. He's heading his way south through Samaria and into Judea, and so he's sending uh, these people ahead of him, some of, some of his other disciples. So with that introduction, let's go to our reading, Luke chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick and who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me, but he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and we pray that you would add your blessing to it for us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, we're going to work through the text again, uh, as maybe is our custom, and at the end sort of figure out a few things that this could mean for us right now. There's a lot to talk about. I'm going to have to skip some parts of it. But the first thing I want to do is sort of talk about the details. Like I said, the, the devil's not in the details. In this case, the Savior is in the details. The details are actually very important because they really point to what Jesus is about. And then I want to talk a little bit about what happens when the disciples return. They come back, and, and there's some really interesting things that are going on there. Uh, by the way, this, maybe any of you, if you have a different translation, you might have 70 disciples were sent out versus 72. Does anyone have 70? If, or maybe you weren't. Or maybe you're, you're you have 70. Okay. And other Bibles have 72. So, Dwayne, you have to leave the building. No, I'm kidding. I just... <laughs> It's interesting, there are multiple, uh, this, is a, this is actually important, there are multiple texts of this particular gospel, the Gospel of Luke. Probably there are hundreds of them, and all of them are quite old, but some of them are older than others, some of them are deemed more reliable than others, and, and many of them differ from each other in some minor details. And one of the minor details, but, but one that's kind of glaring is, did Jesus send out 72 Disciples, other disciples, not the 12, or did he send out 70? And does it matter? And think about it, 72, well, is that a holy number? That's 6 times 12, so maybe. But 70, that's like 7 times 10, so that's pretty holy too. So what, you know, what are we going to do? Which number do we prefer? And the reality is, and, and this, I hope this doesn't shock anybody, but um, it, is, it has been possible, and it is possible, that when these texts are transmitted from generation to generation, uh, they didn't have copy machines, they didn't have Xerox. Back then they didn't just say, oh, here's the Bible, and there's a boop, 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 five copies, and, and out comes a perfect exact replica. What they did is they had a row of scribes, maybe five or ten of them, it was kind of hard to find people who could write, and one guy sitting up here reading it to them, slowly, hopefully, and saying, and then Jesus sent out 72, or 70, we don't know, 70 of the other disciples, and the five of them were going, and then Jesus, you know, and one of them said, did he say 70 or 72? And the other said, stop talking, I can't hear what he's saying when he's whispering like that. And then, eventually, and then they're supposed to all check it later, and they missed that one somewhere along the line. So somebody wrote 72, the rest of them wrote 70, or the other way around. And the fact that there's even this problem, you'll, you can read in the bottom, the, the bottom margin of your Bible, is that scholars just don't know. They don't have a preference. They have a preference, but they don't have a strong preference. And the reality is, is this theologically significant? No. 70, 72, they're just numbers. In almost every case where there's an issue like this with the texts, theologically speaking, it's not super significant, okay? And even if it were theologically significant, we would have to look at other texts, like other parallel Gospels, and that would help us come to a deeper meaning of it. 
But all this to say is that the, the, the people who look at the text of the Bible take an inordinate amount of care, and they can even use small mistakes, what are called transcription errors like this, to trace the origin of one manuscript from, to another. And so they could say, oh, here's all the 72 manuscripts, and here's all the 70 manuscripts. So there must have been an original place where they broke apart, and, and this, minor th- this minor question of 70 versus 72 could actually help them figure out a major problem somewhere else because it would add sort of to the evidentiary chain of figuring out which manuscripts are the most reliable. Isn't that interesting? So the people looking at these, these texts and these fragments of texts, all of which, not all of which, but many of which are written on something called parchment, which is the, the skin of sheep and goats, things like that, um, It's like detective work, piecing together things like this. But their work has resulted in what we have now, which is a very thorough, very accurate, what I believe, a very thorough, very accurate, and very close to the original text that we have. And so we have, I think we can have really good confidence. Even these small errors can still give us confidence that people are taking a lot of care. All that to say, Jesus sent out 70 or more people in pairs, because he, want, he didn't want people to go alone. Remember last week, the very last thing I said was, God never is going to ask you to do any of this missionary work alone. In fact, you shouldn't do it alone. Because the opposition to what God wants to do in this world is so great that a person on their own is going to really be beset. And I'll tell you, I mean, I'll just tell you as a, as a pastor, I can really feel a difference from when I was, was ministering here by myself to when we brought Pastor Zach on as our associate pastor. It really made a difference to have another person down the hall. And he would walk by my office and stop, and we would talk, or I would walk by his office and talk. It, it really makes a difference not to be in ministry or on a missionary journey alone. And so Jesus even sort of embodies this with the way he sends out his own particular details, the way he sends out these missionaries, is he doesn't send out 72 separate missionary teams. He sends out 36 or 35. We're not going to keep talking about that. But he sends them out in pairs so that they're together. They can watch each other. They can protect each other. And, and they can reflect. I think the interesting thing is they can reflect the true reality back to each other. Because if you spend time in ministry, out in the world, it's going to start to seep into you and it's going to change how you see. It's going to distort your vision. And... and all the words, all the time you'd spent with Jesus has put you into this really true place of, of ministry and what God wants you to do. You go out into the world and it's going to start being chipped away at you, from you. But if you have a friend with you who's also going to, has had that experience with Jesus that you've had, then you can kind of feed each other and kind of bring each other back up. And so, uh, you know, the people who say they like to go to church by um, sitting at a lake in the mountains by themselves... That's something, but that's not church, okay? That's something, but there's, there's space in our life, an important space in our life, for doing spiritual things with other people, including ministry and missionary work. So Jesus exemplifies this by sending out his disciples, his other disciples, in twos. But he says, and take a look at verse 3. We're going to go through these verses somewhat rapidly, but he says, this is a hard job. I'm going to send you out like lambs among wolves, which is... is um, Right then, they should have said, see ya. Uh, we know what happens when lambs meet wolves. It, it doesn't sound good. You know, this doesn't sound like a good... Are, are you trying to sell us on this? Because you're the worst salesman ever. Jesus is the worst salesman ever. 
Just read John chapter 6. Okay, he had thousands of people following him. Then he says a few things, and everybody leaves. Okay, and then there's just a few disciples left. And, and Jesus turns to them and says, do you also want to leave? And, and Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So he sold it to 12 people, but that's about it. Okay? But here he's saying, you want, to go, you want to go work for me? You're going to be like a lamb thrown out to the wolves. And yet you'll be protected by each other, by God, by my word, by my name. My name. We'll get into that. My name itself will protect you. And then he, look at verse 4. There's a list of things to actually not bring. It's sort of an anti-packing list. Okay? So it says, um, don't bring a purse which would be something to put your money in. So really kind of, you don't bring too much money with you. Also, don't bring a bag, and the word for that is kind of something larger, like a knapsack, and that's what you would put clothes in. So don't bring that, okay? Don't bring your money. Don't bring your tiny suitcase. And it says, don't bring your sandals. So the question is, does Jesus want them to go Barefoot on this journey, like, like the Hare Krishnas, like sort of running around in the countryside? No. Because it does say later on that you're supposed to wipe this, the dust off your sandals. So really what he means here is don't bring an extra pair of sandals. Don't worry about the sandals that you're wearing getting worn out. Because, as we'll see in all these details, what he's saying to them is you need to rely on people who are on the way for food, for all your needs, for clothing and for shoes. So when your shoes wear out, and shoes did wear out, I mean, shoes are not like, I'm wearing some nice, um, what are they called? Merrells, and they're going to last forever, I think. But a, a shoe made back then didn't last forever, and you walked a lot further in them, too. And so I don't know how long a sandal lasted, but probably not more than, you know, a week at most, maybe two weeks of, of heavy walking, because they just, the building materials were not the same. So they were, instead of bringing an extra pair of sandals with them, they're going to have to somehow get sandals. But with what money? You see what Jesus kind of situation Jesus is putting them into by giving them this anti-packing list? Is I'm sending you out with no resources and no clothes and no food. And as we'll see, you're, you are supposed to get everything you need, even the shoes on your feet, from other people. So, then it says, don't greet anyone on the road. Don't talk, don't... Don't give them a traditional greeting. Back then in the ancient Near East, if you were on a road and you, you kind of pass somebody like this, uh, and sometimes I wave in the car, sometimes people wave back, sometimes people look at me like, why are you being friendly? But, you know, here, back then, you would stop. And you wouldn't just talk about the weather, you would exchange greetings, you would kind of give the news, that's how the news spread. Uh, it was customary to sort of stop and slow down when you saw a stranger on the road and talk to them, potentially. And he's saying, that cultural nicety, you don't have time for. We're, we're in a hurry. We don't have time to stop for people to go bury their parents. We don't have time to stop for these other things. You need to keep going. So just travel light, travel quick, get on the way, and do this thing that I've asked you to do. So then... When you go into a house, uh, you have a test. There's like a sort of a litmus test when you, when you enter into a house. You greet that person with peace. The traditional shalom of that time, which means, may there be a blessing on you, may there be prosperity, may there be peace to you, may there be wholeness and wellness to you. But 
you're carrying with you the name of Jesus Christ, and people kind of know what's going on. They know, they, they've heard a little bit about what's going on. So they, this is, what, what, what do you do next? Well, if that peace lands on that person and they receive it, then you can stay in that house. This is a house that's open to you. It's a house that's available to you to use as a base of operations to do what I'm going to ask you to do. But if that person pushes back somehow, and I'm not sure exactly what that looks like, but I think we can all imagine, I think we've all maybe had this experience of giving a greeting to somebody and having it go, oh, flat, you know, where it's just like, hmm. And whatever's going on with that other person, we don't know in that moment, but you can just sense that there's no chemistry there, there's no connection there, there's nothing going on there, there's no life there. And Jesus says, only spend time and energy on life and living things on this journey. And if there's deadness there, if there's deadness, if there's no receptivity to what I'm about and the peace that I'm bringing, then pack up your stuff and go to another house. Just leave that house and go look for another one. You don't spend time pleading with that person, cajoling that person, trying to persuade that person. Just move on. And so you go where you're welcomed. And the the people in that house are responsible for whether or not they receive you and whether or not, by extension, they're receiving Jesus. They're responsible. You're not responsible. You're not responsible. You're not responsible for how other people receive you when you carry Jesus' name. They're responsible. You're not responsible. I can't stress that enough. You're not responsible. They have a choice in that moment to let God's peace flow from you to them and rest on them or to push back on it. And that we're going to see that that's a choice that needs to be made more explicit to them by the shaking off of the, of the dust from your feet. So we'll get into that in just a second. So what do you do? You're in a house, but don't go from house to house. This is verse 7. Don't go from house to house, kind of like a, a, a hummingbird from a blossom to a blossom, right? Don't do that. Don't go looking for a better room or a better table with food on it. If you found a house where peace exists for you and for the message, you use that as your base of operations, and you go around the town, and you don't go from house to house, you, you maximize the time and the resources that you've been given in that place. You don't spend time looking for better accommodations. Okay. And it says, don't feel bad about staying in that house. Don't feel like you owe them something. Normally in that kind of culture is, well, if I stay at your house, now I owe you a favor, and so somehow I'm going to have to pay you back somehow, or I'm going to have to praise you publicly to raise the amount of your honor. So that's the, sort of the honor banking system. Jesus says, you don't have to do that because you're doing your work, and so you should get paid for your work. Your work right now is to work for me and to spread the kingdom in my name. Their work is to host you. So they're doing their work by hosting you and giving you food and lodging. And your work is to talk about the kingdom of God to anyone who will listen. And that's a good sort of reminder for us that if you're not a missionary, if you're not one going out into the harvest, you could be a host. You could be a hoster. And that's just as important, I think. So you could, you could provide the material resources to missionaries, or you could be a missionary. But either way, you're engaged in missionary activity, as God wants you to be. And that's good. 
So are you a host or are you a harvester? Both are needed in the kingdom. Now look at verse 8 and 9. This is, this is the exciting part. This is what you're supposed to do. Heal the sick. Heal the sick. Jesus gives these disciples power to do things that we, can, we can't normally do. I'm not a doctor. And we're not even talking about medicine here. We're talking about the miraculous healing of people. I wonder where we've lost this. <laughs> um, but I do think that we do pray. We do pray for people if they're, if they're ill. But the, the amount of God's power that was active early on in the life of the disciples, it wasn't, do you remember this? It was not just Jesus who raised people from the dead. The Apostle Paul raised a young man from the dead. All right? Other, other non-Jesus people have raised people from the dead. The, the, the prophet Elijah raised a young man from the dead. Um, so, and Jesus says, you're going to do greater things even than I've done. I'm excited about this. I wonder what it looks like. But go into this town, heal the sick. You do accept hospitality and table fellowship from other people because that's how you interact with people. That's how you have conversations with people. And that's what Jesus does. He takes table fellowship with everybody. The rich, the poor, the righteous, the unrighteous, those who need a doctor and those who don't. And then preach about the kingdom of God as it's manifested in Jesus Christ. Preach. Tell people about what you know about Jesus Christ. And then you say something to them, which is, is a little... It's not confusing. It's, it's lovely. Uh, but it takes a little bit of unpacking. Tell them the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. Not that it's immediately here... You know, it actually is here. It's, it has come with you where you preach about Jesus Christ. That's where the kingdom of God exists. That's one of the, one definition of what the kingdom of God is, is that wherever the word of God is preached rightly, and some people would add the sacraments are administered correctly, but we could leave that aside. We don't need to get sacramental. But wherever the word of God is preached, that's where the kingdom of God actually exists in that moment. It's a non-geographical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. But here the kingdom of God has come nearer to you. And what it means here is that it has been shown to you through the healing and through the preaching and through the acts of power. Jesus himself is going to come near to you. He's going to pass through this area pretty soon. He sent us ahead to tell you about him. It's touching you, and it's all around you. But here's the thing. It's near you, but it's not yet to you. It's not yet in you. It's not yet enveloping you, because have you accepted it yet? Has that peace landed on you and rested there, or have you pushed back on it? Because the kingdom of God is not going to force its way into your house, or into your town, or into your life, or into your family, or into your heart. So it will come near to you. It will come right up to your face, like a kid sticking their nose on the glass, you know. The king, did you know the kingdom's like that? Like a kid sticking their nose on the glass? But it won't come through the window. You have to open the window and let that cute kid come in, you know. But that's the kingdom. It's not going to force its way through the window. It's not going to break down the door. It's not going to coerce its way or wheedle its way into your life or into your heart. It's not coercive that way. 
This is the difference between Christianity and some other religions. We generally, as a rule, hopefully, in the present age, a lot of qualifiers there, don't force people to become Christians. Okay? Um, did you all like that my Norwegian relatives came last week and sang? Wasn't that great? Do you know how Norway was Christianized? With an axe. All right. King Olaf, good King Olaf, was a Viking, pagan king. He became a Christian. And uh, maybe a little bit like Constantine saw Christianity as a way to consolidate his power. And so he got his army together and went from town to town and said, you're all going to become Christians now. And if you don't, we'll cut your heads off. <laughs> and there's actually bad consequences for Christianizing a nation that way. It comes out much later that now Norway is one of the most secular countries in the world. Praise God for my relatives. They're deep, profound, evangelical believers. But I cannot believe it because they're my third cousins. The absolute odds were that 99% should have been that they were like atheists or nothing. You know, That they're evangelical Christians is astounding to me. That's how Norway, Norway was, was Christianized. And um, there's, do you know what heraldry is? It's this, um, the, the designs of famous families or nations, so the symbols of countries and things like that. The, the symbol of the Norwegian Lutheran Church is a red shield with a gold cross in the middle. And on two sides facing away from the cross are two axes. I'm not kidding. This is the symbol, of the, still, of the Norwegian Lutheran Church. As a reminder, I don't know. Maybe they're proud of it. I don't know. I have to ask some people I know. Uh, why does the symbol of your church have a weapon on it? It's a good question. It's a fair question. We don't do that anymore. And Jesus never envisioned it. But in human error, we came to think that we needed to spread the gospel at the point of a sword or at the end of an axe. We don't do that anymore. So the kingdom of God has come near you, but it's not going to hold you hostage. It's going to give you a choice. It's going to come this close, but no further. You have to let it rest on you. You have to choose it. You have to accept it. We're not going to make you. But what happens if it is rejected? Look at this, verse 10. And this is the strongest, kind of scariest part of this passage. If the kingdom is re rejected, you make it clear that it is not asking for anything in return. So I walked through your town, and as I walked through your town, I actually took something from your town. And knowing how your town is, having rejected Jesus, I'm going to be sure to give you back what I took from your town. What am I talking about? The dust on the soles of my feet. I, I don't need it. So I'm going to wipe off even that little bit I got from you. I didn't accept any hospitality from you. You rejected the message of the gospel. Now I'm going to give you back everything that I took from you as I pass through. I'm going to shake the dust or wipe the dust off my sandals to let you know that I'm not taking anything from you. The kingdom of God has come near you, but you've rejected it. Wow. Why... Why does Jesus ask his disciples to do this? It's kind of um, a little bit theatrical, right? It's a little bit in your face. Why not just leave? Just walk out. Just keep walking. They don't really miss the dust. 
They're not, there's not a dust committee in the town saying, oh, two grams. Those people left with it. They, no. There's two ways of thinking about this. One is, you've rejected Jesus, so now Jesus is rejecting you. And we're making it really clear that he's rejecting you. And it's, it's over. You know, that was your chance. I don't like that. But that's probably one way of thinking about it. Here's the other way of thinking about it. This is the one I prefer. Is that this creates a memory. It wasn't just some random people who came through and then they left because we didn't like what they were selling. It was, the kingdom of God has come near to you in all of its glory and splendor, and you rejected it. And I'm going to remind you what that was like. I'm going I'm to wipe the dust off my feet, and I'm going to kind of make some spectacle right here as I'm leaving town. And you'll remember that. You'll be like, do you remember those guys who did that thing with their shoes? And all the things that they said? I wanna cre- they want to create a memory for this town because... In God's wisdom and in Jesus' commissioning, this wasn't the only chance for this town. This wasn't the only chance. God loves second chances, so we're going to get another chance with the coffee. All right, give it a try, Pete's coffee. We're going to get another chance at the gospel. We're going to get a third chance at the gospel. We might get a fourth chance at the gospel. I don't know when God runs out of chances. It's not up to me. Praise God that he's got plenty. Okay, he's got more than enough. And so... When missionaries come back to this town because they've been sent there by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the people in the town will be like, that's the same crew that came here before and wiped the dust off their, off their feet. I really remember that. And, and I kind of regretted not kind of listening to them more. Now's our chance. Let's at least listen to them this time. Let's at least give them. And so I really think that this is not Jesus saying, you guys had one chance at this and you blew it. It's Jesus saying, okay, you missed this chance. But I'm going to make this so memorable for you that when the next chance comes, you're more likely to jump onto it. Okay. Go ahead to uh, verse 16. Uh, The disciples come back and and Jesus reminds them that uh, if you... Speak, you're speaking on my behalf, right? So if people listen to you, they're listening to me. You're an extension to me. And if you reject, if they reject you, they reject me. All of this to say is that you're not responsible for this message. And so if they reject it, they're not rejecting you. It's not because they don't like you. It's because they don't like the kingdom. It has nothing to do with you. So if, if you, and, I, and I'm a people pleaser, so this is really hard for me. If I tell somebody the gospel and they reject the gospel, I go, I might be tempted to say, oh, they just don't like me. I'm miserable. You know, my self-esteem just took a huge hit. Jesus is saying, that's not how it works. This is not about you. You are representing me. So if you're rejected, I'm rejected. And they're not really rejecting you, your personality, your uniqueness as a human being. They're rejecting the gospel. And he says it goes even higher than that. If they reject me, they reject the one who sent me. We all know who that is. So this is a very serious thing to be rejected when you have the gospel on you. But on the other side, you have to conduct yourself well 
as a missionary because your own personal behavior is a reflection, again, on Jesus. And that's why he gives these instructions to them. Don't go from house to house looking for better accommodations. Don't, you know, just be about the thing I asked you to do. You know what the Apostle Paul says? When we came to you, we decided that we would do one thing, which is preach Christ and him crucified. Nothing else. We don't need to add anything to that. We don't need to add our own personality into that. We only need to do, it's, it's I'm, I'm just here for Christ. And then the message is clear. Look at verse 17. The disciples come back. They're really excited because demons submitted to them. This wasn't even in the original instructions. Jesus said, go and heal people. But as it turns out, they were able to cast out a fair number of demons too in the name of Jesus. So we remember again, as we're moving towards Jerusalem, that Jesus' name has this spiritual authority to dispel the forces of evil and bondage and free people. And so they're really excited um, that, this is, that this is happening. And Jesus is excited too, and he says, he says something kind of, what I would say is wonderfully cryptic in its tense. There's some verb tenses here that are odd. They're very unusual in the New Testament which is almost, you would say, the way you would uh, translate it is, I was seeing, I was seeing, but we don't talk that way much, but this is how you would translate it. I was seeing Satan fall from heaven like lightning. It's about a spiritual victory over darkness. And it's in the imperfect sense, uh, imperfect tense. An imperfect tense means that something hasn't been completed yet. A perfect tense means it's done. It's finished. It's complete. Perfect means complete. But an imperfect tense means something is ongoing. So it's almost as if Jesus is saying is that, Jesus, that Satan is falling and his fall started in the past. It's past tense, imperfect. His fall started in the past and his fall is falling and falling and falling and falling and it keeps on falling. And the work you guys just did going out, casting out demons, was part of this grand falling of Satan out of heaven and into a place of punishment and darkness. Which is really exciting that this authority of Jesus, even over Satan, is taking place as a result of the work of humans that are inspired by God and who are bringing God's kingdom near to people and offering them uh, freedom and liberation. So it's wonderfully cryptic. Um, So in any case, and I think we should remember this, when missionaries come and talk to us about what they're doing and we get news from them, I think we should always be thinking to ourselves, Satan is falling because of the work that they're doing. If you write a check and you put it in the offering plate, I guess, guess what? 15% or more of every check you put in our offering plate goes to missionaries or to, to other ministries besides our own church. Um, Satan falling from the sky like lightning because of the work of missionaries around the world. It's an ongoing thing, but it's ultimately going to end in the destruction of Satan. So then, um, and I'm really glad the kids are here. Verse 19, my, my title for verse 19 is don't try this at home. Don't do it. People have tried. Don't, no. First of all, do you, does anyone have a scorpion in their house? Snakes? Some people are snake folks. Not in this crowd. Good, good. That's all right, fine. 
All snake people are welcome here. But, uh, you know, um, other places at the end of the Gospel of Mark, it says some kind of cryptic things like, you know, you can handle snakes and get bit and nothing will happen to you. And uh, some, uh, some people have taken this kind of far. <laughs> in fact, you can probably still go some places in the south and see the snake show. And it's an evangelist sort of prancing around with all these snakes and saying, look, doesn't hurt. Maybe they've been defanged, or they've had, they, there's a way to get the venom out of these venomous snakes so that they, they might get bit, but it doesn't kill them. It's a little bit of stagecraft. Although, who am I to say? Could be the Lord is, is in that. I, it's, just don't do this at home. But the, it's an evidence of the power. I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. You can handle scorpions and snakes, and no harm will come to you. When you are in God's will, you are safe. When you're out together, you're safe. When I send you out two by two, you're safe. Don't go where you're not wanted, and you'll be safe. Rest in that place where peace rests on them, and you'll be safe. Follow my word, and you'll be safe. The kingdom envelops you. You bring it near to everyone else. And that kingdom of heaven is like a shroud covering you and keeping you safe from evil and harm. So what's in this for us? What do we say for us? I would say two things. Again, urgency. This is important work. Don't greet anyone on the road. Don't take extra money. Live off the land. Just go. Go and do this thing. And so if there's some work that God has on your heart and you're sitting there thinking, should I do this now? Or should I do this later? Should I prepare more for it? Preparation is good. Even the scriptures say that. Or should I wait? You know, when you read something like this, you kind of might just get that push that says, God will be responsible for a lot of this stuff. Go out in faith and do what God has put on your heart to do. And don't, don't wait for every T to get crossed and for every I to get dotted. Trust. Go out like lambs among wolves. Handle a few scorpions and snakes. Uh, bring the kingdom of God near to other people because that gives them the choice then to receive it. And again, the other thing is when you're doing this, God is responsible for it. So we don't need to bring any anxiety to it. Really, I wonder how many missionaries and pastors and other people suffer from anxiety because they think, well, what if this isn't received? Well, it doesn't matter to you. God's responsible. If they reject you, they're actually rejecting Jesus. So just be the channel of God's word and kingdom to this world, and you don't have to worry about the rest. You don't have to worry about whether they're going to accept it or not. So we have to bring, uh, we don't bring our anxiety, but we bring our trust and our willingness to go on an adventure where the stakes are high and the danger is real and the kingdom is near and the meals are free but sporadic and the road is dusty and the demons are destroyed, but the outcome is certain that God is victorious over the forces of darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for this missionary work that Jesus sends his disciples on. Father, you have a missionary work in each of our hearts, I sense. Lord, send us out into this harvest which is plentiful. The workers are few. O Lord of the harvest, we ask 
for your help and guidance and protection as we go out in obedience to you. Amen.